This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Tom W., Stefano Orsi, and Ray Roberts, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 455 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing season one of the animated series Blood of Zeus on Netflix. And this will include spoilers for every episode of the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 29th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels, and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name Yale Tetensor. The Silver Shooter, the latest novel in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Hello. The next up, we've got Douglas Cohen, making his 10th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in Inner Zone, Weird Tales, and Space and Time, and he's also the author of Realms of Fantasy, A Retrospective, which collects detailed blog posts about every issue of Realms of Fantasy magazine, where he worked for six and a half years. Together with John Joseph Adams, he co-edited the anthologies Oz Reimagined and What the Bleep is That? So, Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to be back. And also joining us today is Zach Chapman, making his ninth appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in Nature, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Steampunk Universe, and Writers of the Future. And he also edited the book Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and Robert Silverberg. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Always happy to be on. Okay, so let's start off with Aaron and have you tell us what were your expectations going into Blood of Zeus? Um, I didn't really have a lot in the way of expectations simply because um, I, I didn't, I came across it kind of by accident. It was one of those very pandemic things where I was hmm. desperately searching for new content on Netflix. Um, and I don't remember what website I found that was like the the hidden gems of Netflix or whatever that were things that were really highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic and things like that um, that were sort of hiding on Netflix. So that's how I came across it. And because I was kind of in the process of compiling a list of 20 different things, I didn't really pay it much attention. So I, I'm not sure I thought about it too much before I started watching it. Um, and it definitely, in a lot of ways, surpassed my expectations, even though it wasn't perfect. And, you know, I have likes and dislikes and we'll get to those. Um, I was pleasantly surprised with it overall, I would say. I, mean, I guess we'll say, I mean, it's maybe obvious from the title, but this is uh, Greek mythology. So it's sort of a... Uh, the, the, the conceit is that this is a, a sort of a lost Greek myth that you never heard before, but that kind of fits in with the other ones. Um, so Aaron, are you a big Greek mythology fan? Was that something that interested you particularly? Definitely. And I, and I do think that, um, that was overall the most satisfying part of the show was how very, uh, how very much it felt authentically like a Greek myth. Um, and I think if your love of fantasy started out 
with um, an interest in, in Greek myth and in ancient mythology in general, as mine did, then this is like a very satisfying show for you, probably. Mm -hmm. Say about Doug, what were your expectations going into Blood of Zeus? Uh, I'm going to echo a lot of what Aaron said. You know, I just kind of stumbled upon this. Uh, I saw a trailer and, you know, I had watched some anime originals on Netflix before and I was always far from impressed. But they showed some fight scenes, and I won't lie, I like some good fight scenes in anime. And I was like, oh, that actually looks halfway decent. And then I kind of looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes, and I saw a very surprising high rating. And I said, oh, maybe there's actually something to this show on top of the good fights. Yeah, I think it's a 100%, it's right? Or it was at one point. Something like that. I think it was at least 90 So. We're talking top-tier numbers. And I watched the first episode, and I was like, this was kind of interesting. I guess I'll watch the second one. And like I said to you in an email, it just kind of kept building and building. And by the end, it was a really strong ending. And like Aaron, I think it wasn't perfect. I have some quibbles. But overall, it was pretty good. I'd highly recommend it because you don't have to invest a ton of time, and it's fairly rewarding. And how about were you, Doug? Are you a Greek mythology fan? I mean, I've always appreciated the Greek myths. I read the Iliad a couple of times. I've read the Odyssey. I've read some of the other classic plays like Oedipus. Um, I'm not hardcore, but, you know, I'm familiar with Greek mythology, and I appreciate its contributions to the genre. Uh, you know, epic fantasy is always my first love, and you can argue in many ways that the Iliad created like a format for future epic fantasies. And this in particular, Blood of Zeus, it's not just for Greek mythology fans. I'd say it's also for fans of epic fantasy. Cause by the end, this has become truly epic. <laughs> that's kind of, that's, that's good. That's a good, I like that response. It's like, Oh, I've read the Iliad a couple of times. Nothing to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that like, I'm not a big fan, but <laughs> Well, I mean, it's not like I went out of my way to read it a couple of times. I had to read it for one class in school. And then a year or two later, I had to read it for a different class. And I knew it, but I was like, you know what? I'll read it again. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, how about Zach? Uh, what were your expectations going into the show? A pretty low, um, because I, I think it's kind of common where you see on Rotten Tomatoes, like you'll see these 100% rated shows and movies. Um, and, but you only see like, you know, a handful of, of ratings. And I was kind of getting the feeling just based off of that and based off of the art that I wasn't going to like this show. And so my expectation was pretty low going in. And also like the first episode, the first half of the ep first episode, pretty much the first whole episode my expectations were pretty low for the series. Um, but then again, echoing what everyone else's sentiments, it does, it, it definitely builds up as it goes on, um, builds like momentum and you get into it. It's also like very easy to watch because a lot of it is fight scenes. So, um, and the fight scenes are well done while I don't care for a lot of the designs. And that was one of the first things that you see, you know, blood of Zeus and you see the main character and he just looks kind of like on, on the title card. He looks like an NPC, like 
He's got like brown hair, blue eyes, uh, a little scar on his eyebrow for interest, you know, a dirty tunic, and that's it. I mean, he's like not even an interesting looking NPC. So that's kind of like set my expectations of being pretty low for this, which was is probably good because then, you know, I did end up enjoying it by the end. All right, cool. Yeah, so let's uh, let's come back to some of that stuff. But I wanted to talk about just how this show came about. This is just from my research. So it's written by Charlie and Vlaz Parlapanides. And so years ago, um, so there's this classic um, sort of sword and sandals movie called Clash of the Titans from 1981. And these guys were working as Hollywood screenwriters. And they heard that um, they were going to be there, that there was going to be a remake of Clash of the Titans that ended up coming out in 2010, and they kind of put in a, a request to you know be the writers on it, and they were told uh, you you haven't demonstrated that you could do this sort of world building that would be necessary for for a movie like this, and so they said all right well let's let's do something to show that we can so that the next time something like this comes along we'll be in consideration. And so they wrote a script that was eventually filmed as the movie Immortals 2011, which I haven't seen, but I think is sort of a retelling of, of Theseus and the Minotaur. Um, actually, I think Zach has seen it. So maybe in a second we can get to, to Zach. You can tell us about it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so they, they, they got that movie made. And so that sort of established their, their bona fides to do this kind of, you know, um, mythology kind of movie. And then I think because um, cause the Castlevania cartoon did pretty well. And so Netflix, they had a meeting with some Netflix executive who said, you know, if you have anything um, that could work for animation, we would be curious to, to hear it. And they had developed this. They wanted to do this sort of anthology show where each season would be it was going to be live action, but each season would be a different Greek myth. And um, and so they, they'd kind of been working on that. And so they were like, oh, can we is there somehow we can do this as animation? And so they kind of uh, gave the executive some ideas. And he said, you know, if write the, you know, write the pilot and write a uh, sort of a synopsis of the season. And if I like it, I'll, I'll buy it. I, I, re- I really like where this is going. And so that's, that's how the show came about. Um, but yeah, so it does sort of tap into this tradition of, of these kind of, yeah, like I said, sword and sandals movies in Hollywood. So this is the list I have. These are just some of the, the classics. Jason and the Argonauts, 1963. I mentioned Clash of the Titans, 1981. You've got Dur- Disney's Hercules, 97. Um, the remake of Clash of the Titans. There was a sequel to that I also haven't seen called Wrath of the Titans 2012 and this movie Immortals I mentioned. And so, Zach, you've seen some of those, right? You want to tell us about that? Yeah, um, I've I've seen the recent ones. And and honestly, it's it's kind of they're very forgettable. All of these are um, like the the remake and then the, the remake of Clash of the Titans and then the remakes um, sequel are all very forgettable. But they do. I did just rewatch um, the Clash of the Titans, and from what I recall, it's a pretty, you know, similar retelling, but just with a lot more CG, a lot you know, bigger set pieces and that sort of thing. But the same basic set pieces, and then um, the Immortals was kind of like this. Um, it's it's kind of like gods versus titans. It's kind of similar to the show, uh, the last episode, but the Titans are kind of depicted from what I remember, not really as Titans, but, and and the gods aren't really depicted as 
gods. They they look kind of normal. Um, the Titans look kind of like zombies with these kind of spiky helmets. Um, visually, it's um, Tarsim Singh. Yeah. Uh, I, and so visually, it looks... If you take a frame from it, it looks really cool. There's a couple of really cool fight scenes. There's an overuse, like an extreme overuse of slow-mo. <laughs> I mean, it was like he... It, it feels like he's just trying to do 300. And I read um, like a quote from him saying like he wanted to do like a Greek epic as like a Renaissance painting. And that's definitely like if you take a still from this movie, um, there is a lot of like Renaissance painting like imagery. But um, it's. I mean, it's yeah. it's very forgettable, and it's not a. I wouldn't recommend it. One of the reviews I read, I, it might have been Rodri, but I forget. But the person said this is the most beautiful, awful movie you've ever seen. <laughs> well, and even there, there are a lot of fight scenes where it's so dark, um, visually, like. Uh, it's hard to see what's going on in at least on the, in the T on the TV that I watched back in, you know, uh, 10 years ago. Now when I saw it, I just remember, and and I could have, I know I saw a couple of these in 3d and that is even worse for (laughs) making things dark or it, it was back then. And so I just remember it just being like having trouble in the more darker scenes that there's a, I forget where they store the Titans, but it's like this kind of subterranean. It's like Mount T. I don't know. It starts with a T. Um, but that's all like this subterranean area. And and so all the fighting happens in the dark. And so it, you know, re- rewatching it on YouTube, um, just the scenes now, like it, it looks prettier than what I recall. But that was one of my main takeaways back when I saw it was like, I was so excited to see the movie because I, I love that director. He's, he's made one of my favorite movies of all time, which is the fall. And I I highly recommend that movie. It's just visually stunning and it has a good narrative too. Um, But this movie is like sometimes the immortals is sometimes visually awesome. And then at other times it's just very Zack Snydery, like really, from about that 2005 style of 300, like 300 came out and then there was all, and, and um, Sin City came out and there was like all of these movies that were aping off of that like really dark, gritty uh, color scheme with slow-mo. And that's like really what that movie is. Well, well, yeah. And so, I mean, um, I think I should, I think I told you guys over email, but the these writers, um, you know, they said that the budget for Immortals got slashed from, you know, they they needed it to be like 150 million and then it was slashed to 75 million. And then they brought in other writers who made changes that, that they weren't very happy with. So they, they seemed pretty down on immortal. So I guess this, this was, you know, an attempt to kind of do something similar, um, but have a little bit more control over it. Um, I also wanted to mention, they, and they also said that clash of the Titans, as I said, you know, was a big influence on them. And I watched that a bunch of times, you know, I took years of Latin in school and we would watch it periodically and Aaron, you said that you've watched that many, many times. That was one of my childhood staples. I was obsessed with the idea that if I looked hard enough in a junk shop, I could find a boobo somewhere. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I, I 
remember like almost every beat of that movie down to the sort of the, the tinny voices speaking from the shields and all that kind of stuff. I just, I really liked it. But as Zach says, I think the, the remakes were entirely forgettable. Yeah. And just in case, so Bubo is a uh, mechanical owl created by Hephaestus, if anyone's wondering what that was. And Clash, the, I mean, I, I, I'm, I sort of um, don't remember that well, but it's the, it's the, it's basically the story of Perseus and Medusa. I mean, at least that's the part that sticks out in my mind. Yeah. I think that's the best part of the movie. There's a lot of it, like it borrows from a couple of other myths, but but yeah. There's so I just watched it today. Um I don't I may have seen it as a child, but I have no memory. I mean that but what I noticed to, today that was so irritating about this movie is all of the day for night shots. It's just constant with it and it's so that like technique has aged so poorly. Um so I'm like, it just makes everything all murky and like I'm not sure ugly. I know what you mean by that. Uh, I think it's like this technique where they just darken the film. Like, like they like take they, they shot it during the day and then you know treated it, processed it to make it look like uh, it's at night. Yeah, they like okay. burn. They burn the. They just really darken the image, and and it's like well, and th- and there are some parts of that movie that take place like at night that are shot in a studio, like when he fights um, Calibus. I mean, it's a super low budge movie. Yeah. Well, and that looks cool. It's, it's crazy how, how better um, that movie from the sixties. Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. Jason and the Argonauts. It's crazy how much better that looks than this movie clash of the Titans from 81. Yeah, I haven't seen Jason and the Argonauts in a really long time, but I just watched some of the scenes, and you know, they they definitely lifted stuff from it for um, Blood of Zeus. Like, there's this scene where there's Talos, the giant metal man, and um, and that actually looks—it's all like Ray, uh, Ray Harryhausen um, stop action. So, I mean, you know, today it doesn't look that great, but like for the time, you're like, this is really, really amazing. Um, and I think actually I was just reading, it was kind of interesting that Talos in mythology was a bull, like a giant metal bull. And they changed it to a giant metal man for that movie because, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know, it looks better on film or something. And so it's just kind of interesting that this blood of Zeus kind of takes that idea and, and continues it. So the story is, you know, kind of constantly evolving, like, like these oral myths uh, always have. Um, but yeah, so let's get into, oh, so go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to throw in a fun little tidbit about uh, the original Clash of the Titans. I personally have never seen the movie, but my wife's mom absolutely loved the movie so much that she named my wife after one of the characters from the movie. And that's why my wife's name is Andromeda. Yeah, I was going to say, if she hasn't seen it, she should watch that. But uh, does, does, <laughs> does she like uh, Clash of the Titans? Uh well, yeah, because that's where her name comes from. So she like watched it a bunch of times as a kid. Uh, I think we were actually watching it once not that long ago during the pandemic, and we both kind of fell asleep on it, and we never came back to it. But you know, a lot of a lot of fantasy fans, when they find out, and science fiction fans, when they find out my wife's name is Andromeda, they're like, "Really? You, your wife's name is Andromeda, Douglas? You, you, the science fiction fan? Well, this is why my wife's name is Andromeda." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned following, I mean, certainly my experience of watching all these sandal, sword and sandal movies was kind of, involves a lot of falling asleep. Um. (laughs) (laughs) They have a slow pacing. Would you count Troy in there, even though it doesn't 
I don't think it has any gods in it, if memory serves. Yeah, I was excluding 300 and Troy because they don't have any Greek gods in them. But I mean, well, but yeah, I mean, is 300 as explicitly based on stuff that's been treated in classics, though? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly they're all kind of in the same. Yeah, yeah. general. Anyway, yeah, body of work. Um, and I, I think everyone, the, the one thing I remember from the remake of Clash of the Titans, you know, the 2010 is release the Kraken. So, um, Liam Neeson, uh, Liam Neeson is, uh, Zeus and in the trailer, he says, release the Kraken. And I feel like that's just become a pop culture catchphrase. Like, I feel like still, you know, I still hear oh, people say sure. that all Agreed. the time. Yeah. Like Neil before Zod. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's get into Blood of Zeus specifically. So, um, so, so Aaron and Doug both recommended that I should watch this show. So, um, Doug, why don't you tell us kind of what were your impressions of kind of the first couple episodes? Um, all right, uh, Zach kind of alluded to the the artwork, and I also was a little down on it overall. Uh, I thought just it could have been crisper like tighter. There were actually moments where the art is very nice. It just wasn't very consistent throughout. And when you, and like some of the characters really, it showed up. I thought in particular, the demons and Seraphim, who is the main villain. I thought they could have done a lot more uh, in terms of the artwork. So you kind of had to get past that. But as I kept going on, you know, I stayed with it because I saw, there is a story here. The writers seem to understand Greek mythology and they kept building it bit by bit. Um, and you know, the, I think I watched it in like two days. So the episodes very much blended together for me. And I, I couldn't tell you like where one episode ends and another one begins. Um, but early on, I was just, I was just pleasantly surprised. Um, I could believe this was kind of a lost myth. I don't really recall too many demons per se out of Greek mythology, but there are all sorts of different creatures out of Greek mythology. So I was just perfectly willing to believe, oh yeah, this is another Greek uh, creature from the ancient days. And, you know, I, and then they did pull out a few creatures that were familiar to us. And I guess that was one of my pet peeves. I think they introduced, Cerebus, the three-headed dog in the first few episodes, and we never really got a good explanation, as far as I could tell, why Cerebus was in it at all. I mean, <laughs> what they did with the three-headed dog was very cool, but, you know, it, that, that was one of my quibbles with the show. Yeah, so let's set up this. So the story, as you're saying, yeah, so the main character is, is Heron, who's a young man, and he lives with his mother outside of this town. And they're kind of outcasts because, um, I, I guess, because she's like a single mom. Um, nobody knows who his father is. And no, that and, Dave, uh, if I could correct you, they actually uh, addressed why they're they're outcasts. Um, that that like it gets deep into the story though. But basically, Zeus is trying to protect Heron and the mother from Hera's wrath because Zeus had an affair with the mortal mom, and that was how Heron was born. And Hera wants them to suffer and to die. And the only way to protect them when they went to this mortal city was to cast a giant cloud over the entire city to keep Hera from finding them. And because the cloud came along at the same time as 
Heron as a baby and his mother came along, the people thought that she was like a witch or just like bad luck. And that's why they kind of became outcasts in the city. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there's all that. And then, so now he's like, I don't know, 18 or something. And there's this like invasion of demons um, and who can disguise themselves as people. And this, I guess this was, I actually really liked the art. I was pretty impressed visually with the show. That was really kind of the main thing, along with, you know, the fact that I like Greek mythology um, that kind of drew me into it. But like you were saying, Doug, like um, my, my first sort of big, um, big hang up kind of with the show is that I felt like it was sort of like a weird combination, this character Seraphim and his demons with the, yeah, like the, the Greek pantheon and cerberus and the chimera and all this kind of stuff it they always kind of felt like like some weird crossover event where characters from different shows had gotten together um so and and also like seraphim you know is not a greek word it's a hebrew word and you know and like the the demons feel more like sort of judeo-christian kind of demons than than anything in greek mythology that i remember so i guess i'll just throw that out there to start with um what did people did anyone else have that uh, i had i had kind of the opposite of I, I really i i had big issues with a lot of the art direction of the show um but the seraphim was i thought he had the coolest design like i i liked he's like a spiky red boy you know with, with long white hair red eyes i mean i it's like a I, maybe that's generic, I guess, for like an evil villain, but I think it looks cool. To me, the generic stuff was like all the gods. They seem lacking in design. Like Zeus kind of just looked like a cheap Jack Kirby imitation. Mount Olympus was um, unimpressive. Like it, I, I thought it could have been like really epic looking. Um yeah, but the brother and especially the chimera, like the reimagining of what a chimera would look like. Because I, if you look at like a traditional chimera, right, it's kind of weird. Like it's got a goat head in the middle of its back. Like that's not that cool. But like <laughs> putting the, the goat horns into the like the lion's head and just like kind of like streamlines the design. I thought that was a really cool looking, um, you know, monster. But then the Titans, or I guess they're I not, he they're was giants. A manticore. <laughs> this <laughs> I mean, whole time, I, I thought he was a manticore. No, I don't. I, I, I was yeah. trying to decide if it was a manticore or a sphinx, that, that, but it was cool. Yeah. Well, it had that serpent tail and then the goat horns on. So that's why I figured it was just kind of like a re. Yeah, well, it definitely, it definitely wasn't a scorpion tail. It was definitely like a serpent kind of tail. Yeah, and um, the the designs for the giants they were they're giants, right? Or are they yeah, yeah. tight? Okay, so the the giants were kind of like just a mixed bag. Like some were really cool, and then there was like one that was just like a flying demon that would suck people up into its flame wings. It didn't. It looked weird. It w it didn't look cool and it didn't make sense to me. But then, you know, some of them did visually look pretty awesome. 
It's funny. I just like had the completely opposite reaction. I, I liked a lot of the demon designs. I didn't like the ones that were too anthropomorphic. They were just like jacked dudes with horns. Those ones were boring. But I loved the one that was basically a, a manta ray <laughs> that I think is the one you're talking about that lifts out of the sea and is just this big flaming manta ray. I thought that that was among the more original designs. It like had like two frames of animation <laughs> and then it would just like float by. And then well, people so, will go into it for wings. sure. And so like, I think one of the things that that strikes me just in listening to the comments is that um, I wonder if they would have been better off not calling it anime or treating it as if it were anime, because it's really not um, in, a, in a sort of the way that I think of it, um, particularly too, if you're thinking of anime, not only as a visual style, but as a storytelling style, um, then this isn't really that. It actually, to me, has more in common with like it's it's like a grown up version of nineteen eighties cartoons. Yeah. And so I I think it's not supposed to be doing some things we're expecting from it. And if you kind of take it on its own terms as a deliberately simple, uh, deliberately simple animation style, then you kind of get over that hang up. And you know, it's similarly if you think about sort of anime as a body of work, some of the most interesting and original storytelling happening in that, in that genre. And this isn't meant to be original storytelling. It's meant to be the exact opposite of that. This is meant, I mean, it's kind of unfair to talk about tropes. These guys are the OG, like (laughs) this invented the trope. So, you know, if you want it to feel satisfying and have it resonate as a Greek myth, then it kind of by definition has to hew to some of those expectations. So I think, I don't know that they did themselves any favors by calling it anime or sort of triggering that set of expectations. Yeah, it did really remind me of an 80s Saturday morning cartoon. Like Zeus looks a lot like the father in Bionic 6. And yeah. Even the and, sound effects? Yeah, and also in the Greek gods, they, they kind of have a weird, like, I don't know, like, there's something a little bit futuristic about their costumes. It's so it, it kind of rem- was reminding me of like visionaries or, or you know th- those cartoons from the '80s. Um, but you know, like I liked it. You know, aside from the the, the 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 sort of weird and like you know, like the giants. Some of them seemed more like Cthulhu monsters than you know Greek mythology monsters. But aside from that sort of weird kind of mix of elements, I I, I found the first couple episodes pretty. You know, um, they they pulled me in. I was interested in what was happening. Um, and so, and I liked, you know, yeah, like identifying the, um, like seeing the golden fleece on Hera and stuff like that was, was fun. Um, I, so, so yeah, like the first half of the season I thought was, was really pretty fun and enjoyable. I had a lot of issues once we start get into the second half of the season, which is interesting actually, because Doug was saying that he thought it got better as it went along. So it sounds like there's we a lot of us on this panel have completely opposite <laughs> reactions to a lot of stuff in the show. But um, mm. I guess, Doug, do you want to talk about that? You said, can you say more about why you liked it more and more as it went along? Uh, well, I, I almost felt like as it kept going, it started finding more of its own footing. You know, it got away from those classic epic fantasy tropes and it started just embracing its own story more as you find out the background for Seraphim and you see like the depths of his pride, which takes you all the way to the final scene, which I thought was a pitch perfect final scene to finish the, the series. I thought the fight scenes were, were excellent. And I think, 
I think they were just building an effect toward those fight scenes the whole time. And that was just like, those were good popcorn moments for me. You know, I, I was all on board. It was good choreography. I thought the artwork lent itself better to those fight scenes toward the end. Um, they introduced a couple of characters that were entertaining here and there toward the end that you didn't see early on, like, uh, coffee, I think it was. And, uh, the other, yeah, the two guys that were freed from the slave galley, uh, I thought they were entertaining sidekicks. Um, and also, you know, as the, the gods started turning on each other and jumping into the fray with the mortals, I was reminded a lot of the Iliad, where, at, from my recollection, because it's been like 20 years since I've read the Iliad, but from my recollection, the gods seem to take this attitude of, yeah, no, the mortals are going to fight, and we're going to stay out of it, but I'll interfere right here and do this, and but I'll interfere and do that. And that felt very Greek mythology to me, the way that they acted above it, but they really weren't above it. They couldn't help themselves but get involved. And, you know, I thought it was really, it was fitting the way they embraced, like, uh, the way Zeus sleeps around and, because he does that a lot in Greek mythology and they really show the consequences of his behavior because for all their powers, these gods were acting like mortals. Well, yeah, let me, let me pick up on that because I thought that this was different than I had always imagined Zeus as kind of a, you know, you know, sort of a philanderer that he, I, I never had the sense that he was, had a, any great emotional attachment to any of these mortal women that he was having sex with. Most and of this, them he just straight up raped. Yeah. And Let's so, and so this, that that, there. <laughs> and this, that they, they really make it like it's a love story between him and, um, this, and, uh, Heron's mom, uh, who's Electra. Um, so yeah. I mean, Aaron, did you, did you feel like this was, do you, do you agree with what I'm saying that this is kind of a different version of Zeus than from the mythology? It, it, it is and it isn't. Uh, I mean, they kind of, I would say it's the same version, but soft pedaled. Um, I think, I think my central sort of struggle with this show is that the main conflict is both very true to the source material and deeply problematic. Um, and, and that's kind of, it's hard to square that circle. I mean, ordinarily, if, if this were not sort of hewing so closely to the source material, I would be complaining a lot about the central conflict essentially revolving around Zeus who were clearly supposed to sympathize with to a large extent, who is just a complete dog who's running around rutting with everything that moves, which Hera is the only one who really just, she says it, but we don't see it. So we're, we're meant to sort of focus on this love story between Zeus and, and Electra, despite the fact, and, and to some extent, a love story between Zeus and Hera. It's a love gone wrong, but that it used to be this, this, um, this wonderful love between them. And we skip lightly over the fact that, you know, Hera mentions that he's philandering all the time, but we never see it or, or see any evidence of it other than sort of briefly mentioning Apollo and Hermes and some of these others who are the spawn of these previous unions. Um, and, you know, Hera as the antagonist is the archetypal woman scorned. And she's sort of all the things that we've come to expect from women in this position. She's deceitful and manipulative and petty and all of these things. And it would all just be a giant eye roll were it not for the fact that that is indeed how Hera is portrayed in a lot of Greek mythology. 
so I, I kind of had a bit of a struggle with that. And what I wish they would have done is sort of relegated that maybe more to the background and maybe an old source of bitterness, but focused more on her more contemporary jealousies, um, made more of the fact that, for example, she used to be the queen in this story. She used to be the queen of the, the gods and Zeus kind of usurped her. I kind of wish they had made more yeah. of that and focused less on the the woman scorned angle. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I thought that her, you know, her her jealousy and and so on was not a strong enough motivation to want to massacre half of her family members. You know, like yeah, I don't remember if, if there's anything like this in Greek mythology. I, I remember her, you know, wanting to like kill Zeus's kids and stuff like that. But I don't remember and her being yeah. her being this like genocidal kind of. And and yeah, I, I think it. Would have been more interesting to me if she also, in addition to the jealousy or whatever, also had some political or ideological or philosophical aim. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, but I want to get to be sorry. Just to finish that last thought. Just to be fair, to I think it's very it's very hard to to do anything with Greek gods um, and have them in any way sympathetic um, without skipping over a huge part of the canon because they're like all rapists, <laughs> like, like all of them, just about all the Greek heroes in general. So it's kind of hard, you know, you, you, if you want to use these guys as heroes, you, you kind of have to relegate that to the background. There's not really any way around it. Yeah. But I want to get Zach back in here. Zach, do you have any um, response to anything that we've been saying here? Yeah. I mean, I just agree with this is this is what was the problem for me for the first half of the show or really like all of the show up until you get um, Seraphim's backstory because you know, he doesn't have anything to do with that. Like his backstory is just, you know, his, like him being a badass, having like a cool character arc and his troubles and stuff. And it's, it's actually way more interesting than Heron's, but, but just between Zeus and, um, sorry, what's the, um, blanking on her name? Hera. Uh, Hera. Yeah. Hera. It's like, they could have fixed this by making Zeus, like not just like oh man he just wants to be the world's best dad and it's like <laughs> that that just totally rubbed me the wrong way i just <laughs> i did not care for how zeus was depicted i wanted him to be like you know the type of god that's going to strap someone to you know a mountain for giving fire to mortals and having that person's liver get eaten by buzzards every you know day or whatever like he he just didn't seem like a wrathful or vengeful or interesting god. He's just like this there I mean he's really sympathetic or I mean I guess he's written that way to he just wants to be the world's best dad and he he's loves this feckless, right? Like he makes a lot of stupid mistakes. Yeah, he doesn't seem smart, you know? Uh he he only does like the only cunning thing that he does is Towards the end of the show, he gives Seraphim uh, the heads up on where his uncle is. And to complete his revenge, he's like, you know, here, look, I'm not going to hold this above you like Hera is. So go get your revenge and then we can be like buddy, buddy, which like that was the only that might be the only thing that happens in the entire show that is like someone doing something intelligent um, <laughs> because it's, it, the show is just, you know, people fighting. Yeah. For, well, well, 
Well, you mentioned Seraphim's, bad motivations. <laughs> you mentioned Seraphim's backstory, which uh, I, was probably my favorite part of the show. There's in episode four, we kind of get his whole story, where basically um, uh, his mother was queen, and uh, Zeus was um, taking the form of her husband and having sex with her, and then she got pregnant, and then gave birth to two children, one of whom was by her husband, the king, and one of whom was by Zeus. And when her husband, the king, uh, you know, discovered this, he tried to kill Heron, the, the Zeus's child, and Zeus intervened and saved him, and then, but killed the king in the process, and then the uncle takes over, and then he wants his own kids to inherit the throne, so he tries to kill um, Seraphim, and then Seraphim is sort of saved by a loyal uh, court person and spirited off into the wilderness. And then, and it goes on and on, but I mean, it's, it's an interesting story. And I, I thought it was, um, I thought it was pretty good. And, and I totally agree with you, Zach, that it's more interesting than anything that we find out about Heron, um, which I think is a whole, I could say a lot about that, but I, I mean, I guess, I guess I will. I mean, I, I think that, <laughs> you know, probably my, my number one issue with the show as it develops it's like i said i really liked I, I i thought the visuals were awesome and the fights and the this whole world of the demons and mythology and everything i thought was super cool but then just like on a like sentence by sentence level i didn't find the characters that interesting um they seemed either to have no personality or very one-dimensional personalities and and this thing with seraphim's backstory is like the the one part that jumps out at me where it was it was more interesting but then i feel feel like it kind of like you know, he just became sort of a, a cardboard villain again after that. Um, and so, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, I guess my, my, my major difficulty with the show is I thought that the characters, I just didn't, you know, there was nothing about their personalities that I found that engaging. I, I Aaron was actively annoying in some parts I thought. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I guess I kind of, I, I disagree just a little bit with w- the, what happens with Seraphim and that his motivation is, it seems logical like and it seem it's interesting to me that he's just like he he says fuck the gods i'm aligned against the gods join me brother and and it's so it's not like to me that wasn't too um like too cartoonish what was bizarre was that his brother was like, no, nah, I'm gonna kill you. Like Heron, who's supposed to be the good guy is like, no, I'm a side with the gods, which just didn't seem to make sense because Zeus hadn't been a good father. And, you know, uh, the gods are trying to kill both of them. So they should have teamed up. So I did like where that motivation took him. Um, and that he was just he was just trying to erase the gods, and that was cool. And it makes sense. Like Hera, he's not teaming up with Hera because he wants to. You know, he's using what abilities she can give him now, and then he's gonna turn on her as soon as possible and kill her and kill Zeus. Which to me was like it, it made sense with the character, and it's like, yeah, that's actually kind of um kind of heroic like in a way like fuck the gods like they're they're assholes <laughs> you know they don't deserve that power especially if they're gonna make these little wars against each other for you know her 
cheating or because they're cheating on each other, you know, he's the only one who calls them on their bullshit. And I think that's kind of the disappointment. Like, it's not just that Zeus was a bad dad. Like, let's go back to the beginning. Zeus starts out as a total perv in the form of a bird watching a woman bathe. (laughs) He's perving out and then he shows up in her bedroom in disguise and basically lies to her for months and months while he's effectively, you know, having non-consensual sex with her. And, and, and so it goes from there. And at no point, like, like Heron's chief objection to all of this seems to be, you know, you let my mom, you, you let my mom suffer and you never intervened and helped. And, and that is a perfectly legitimate gripe. But it's also just like a fragment of the ways in which Zeus has been a total fuck and no one's called him on it. Um, and so I think like Seraphim's choice is completely rational. He seems to be the only one who realizes that it, it's not even, it's kind of interesting because as Douglas was saying before, it's like portrayed as this is a mortal conflict and the gods shouldn't intervene, but it's not. It's a celestial conflict that they're using mortals as their proxies to to carry out against one another. And they're just all manipulating and, and being selfish through the whole thing. And, and it just would have been nice if maybe one of the more neutral or good aligned characters was also like, but, but you guys, <laughs> you know, we're, we're being played here. And does anyone else, does any, is anyone else not on board with this? I want to get Doug back in here. Doug, what do you think about what we're saying about these characters? Yeah, I had a few thoughts uh, in terms of the characters. Like I, I get what a lot of people are saying, but I just kind of roll with the punches because I think in a lot of cases, we were dealing, instead of like, you know, these deep psychological profiles, we were getting archetypes, you know? It's like, here, here's like the key points about Zeus and Hera, and roll with that. And here's the key points about Ares or whoever, and roll with that. And I think the writers just kind of took it for granted that most viewers will go along with this because... We're not just doing this arbitrarily. We are drawing on Greek mythology, which has established archetypes. And yes, we are going to make some tweaks here and there. I, I guess like in terms of like Zeus with the love story, I think if they emphasize uh, Zeus the rapist, it probably would have turned off a lot more viewers. <laughs> so they tried to soften it up. That's probably true. Yeah, so, and yes, with Seraphim, he was less of an archetype. He was more of a psychological profile, and he was, I agree with uh, everyone, he was the most interesting character in the entire series, but I also get why Heron did not want to join with him when he extended his hand, because you know what? Seraphim did kill their mother, and yes, they were manipulated, but even despite the manipulation, that was an unnecessary murder. I'm not saying there's a such thing as a necessary murder, but it's not like his back was against the wall and he had no choice but to kill this woman. He killed this woman out of cruelty. And it's kind of hard to reach across the aisle, for lack of a better term, when that happens. And there, there is a, even though Seraphim is saying, fuck the gods, and I get that, there's a cruelty about him. There, he thinks he's, you know, maybe life shaped him that way because of his backstory, but there's a cruelty to him. And if had he taken over, uh, it's not like I see a euphoric paradise <laughs> in the future for everyone. <laughs> no, I completely agree with that. I, I think Heron made the right choice. It's just at no, at no point did any of the good aligned characters question 
you know, what, what they were fighting for or what was the end state that they were trying to produce. They were just like, it was a, just a straight up good guy, bad guy thing. Yeah. And as far as they were concerned, they well, were good and, guys. And it seems like it would have been more interesting. I hadn't really thought about this until you mentioned that, Doug, but it seems like it would have been more interesting if Heron was kind of caught in the middle between two factions that were both terrible and he had to try to pick the lesser of two evils. And, you know, like mm -hmm. Zeus is terrible. And then in the process of wanting to overthrow Zeus, um, Seraphim has become terrible and has become a fanatic and is just as bad as Zeus is now. And which side do you pick in that conflict when, you know, neither of them is that attractive? And, and, but, but because the, you know, who, the, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys was so telegraphed, there wasn't as much to think about as, as there could have been. Yeah. I mean, to some degree, I would have also liked to see a little bit more of the Pantheon. Um, there were some characters that we saw a little bit of um, that I would have liked to see more. One of my favorite scenes for reasons I can't really articulate is the scene where so, so much has been made up to this point that Zeus has laid down the law, thou shalt not interfere with mortals on pain of death. And Hera kind of manipulates him into a, a minor transgression in this regard and uses that to sort of rally the gods to her cause. And, and they're all quite critical and they, they call Zeus out and they're like, you know, you're being a hypocrite, blah, blah, blah. And so there's this point of tension and we know that um, the gods have kind of, they've given him a warning uh, on this issue. And so th this scene arrives where uh, Heron is in a, a, a tremendous amount of danger and um, they're on a slave galley coming into to the bay and Seraphim arrives on his chimera with the, the magic sword, which I'd like to talk about a little bit, and the magic spear. And he's, he, you know, going to rain fiery death on all of our heroes. And Zeus just loses it. And he starts throwing thunderbolts all over the place, uh, including into the water, which electrocutes no one, which is a puzzle. But anyway, he's flinging his uh, lightning bolts everywhere. And there's this shot of all of the gods on Olympus taking note of this, of this like flagrant flouting of the law. And I just, I really liked it. I particularly like Apollo waking up in his like surrounded <laughs> by his beautiful lovers. And he's like, what's happening? <laughs> um, I, I would have just liked to see a little bit more of them because mostly they just stand around and glower. There's only a couple that they get even a couple of lines. It, it, that, confused me um because i think because of the that scene was not like articulated like particularly well um because then later uh i think one episode later when the gods are actually splitting like they're they're choosing okay i'm gonna go with hera okay i'm gonna go with zeus the the only ones that I understood at the time while I was watching that split was that Hermes was buddies with Zeus because that's his father. I had no idea Apollo's allegiance. And so when he gets wrecked by Ares, that that came out of the blue for me. Mm. Um, and then um, I guess Hephaestus, and that was only because they just kind of hang out and help train um, Heron. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, those are the only two gods that they really showed prior to, I guess the, the final episode where the gods do take sides. It just seemed like everyone was picking Hera's side. Yeah. 
even including Apollo. So I was shocked when Apollo comes to save the day to save Hermes and then just gets, you know, Ares axe to the head or hammer to the head. <laughs> I mean, um, he was kind of interfering on behalf of Zeus early on. He seemed like he just was, I don't know. He was trying not to piss anybody off. It looked like. Yeah. I just, I, maybe if they had focused just a tiny bit more on who was aligned with who and like maybe why? Cause a lot of these characters are just, they're kind of like in the periphery. They're just like in the background and then they, they stand up and throw a fireball or they swing a hammer or they, they glower or whatever. Like Ares is just always glowering at Zeus. And it also made Zeus just seem like an underdog, which is a bit of a, like a, an interpretation. I felt like w- in that moment when they were all in Harrow, had kind of like taken all the gods from him or whatever. See, it just seemed strange. All right. Like a strange depiction. Speaking of things that seem strange, I'm going to, I want to get into my primary critique here, which is I I was told, I was pretty much, as I said, I was pretty much with this show for the first four episodes. I liked, as I said, I liked the Seraphim backstory and it really started to lose me in five and six because it just seemed like they were cribbing stuff shamelessly from empire strikes back. Uh, I can't be the only one who thought this. I could go through all the... Am I the only one who thought this? I didn't pick up on that, but I'm curious I, I to hear I want to hear the thoughts. bulleted list. Oh yeah, me too. All right, so um, so Alexia goes to meet with Chiron, the centaur, and he says, oh, I'm sorry, I had no choice. They arrived just before you did. Okay, all right. Oh, uh, Lando. And so he's exactly <laughs> okay. like Lando, and then he even says, like, no, we had a deal. She was going to stay here with me. I mean, like, they're literally just quoting lines from Star Wars. And then, like, Heron goes to train with Zeus. And his big problem is that he's, he can't control his anger. Like, much anger in him, you might say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, Star he, Wars didn't invent that, can I just say. But anyway. Wait, wait, wait. wait. And, and then he gets, like, this prophecy that his friends are in danger. And he has a choice to either complete his training or to go save his friends. Right? It was just... And then, like, he runs into a Seraphim, who's, like, not his dad, but his brother. And is like, join me, and reaches out his hand. And then when he refuses, Seraphim says, you're either with me or against me, which is, of course, what Anakin says to Obi-Wan. Um, and so, like, yeah, n- none of those things are, like, original to Star Wars, but it was just, like, one after another after another after another, where it's like, I feel like I've seen this movie before. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's fair. Um, hey, steal from the best. <laughs> <laughs> I I think for me, one of the things that, that I found overall most frustrating about the show was the little things that they didn't do well for no, for no real reason. Like there were just so many things on the one hand, you had what I thought was a a really sort of beautifully authentic take on life in, in, in the ancient Mediterranean, Um, you know, just down into the little details of the tools that they're using and the clothes that they're wearing and what they're eating and, you know, the, the way things are, are depicted on the pottery and all these just lovely little details. And then just like a flagrant disregard for basic physics, which a flagrant disregard for basic physics, even factoring out all of the magic and the God powers and all the rest of it, which that, that always bothers me. Like the more sort of, uh, otherworldly supernatural stuff you introduce, I think, the more important it is for the non-supernatural stuff to make sense. Um, and all of, all of those little choices I just thought were were so unnecessary and I kept tripping over them. Well, 
What were you saying, Aaron, about the, you said like the, about the sword and the lightning bolt or something? Oh, the sword. So, so one of the things I kept tripping Which is the lightsaber. Can I just point that out? It is, it's just yes, a lightsaber. It clearly, it's clearly a lightsaber. Um, so, so the forging of the god weapon is, is a common piece in, in Greek mythology. Um, and so right at the beginning, it's, if it's not episode one, it's episode two. Um, Zeus, I guess it's episode two. Zeus helps to forge this magic godly sword for his son who throws it away. Like he's like throwing in the teddy right out of the pram, just like me throws it away, which, okay, he's having a moment of rage, but I kept waiting for him to go get the bloody sword. Like at no point when there's an invading army of demons, is he like, Oh man, you know, what would be so cool is if I had the God sword, he never goes back for it. So of course it gets claimed by Seraphim who rightly recognizes its awesomeness and starts lightsabering through things just for fun. They show up in this battle in the cave. One of the first things that Heron does is knock the sword out of Seraphim's hand. And I'm like, at last, he's going to claim his birthright. <laughs> no, he just fucking it's like leaves. He just Chekhov's leaves gun there. that never goes off. Chekhov's useless sword <laughs> that never gets up used. leaves it there. You know, it's, I, it is I so odd. Like, is this a metaphor for the birthright? Is this is this going to make sense sometime? It is never this going to like? It, it's never used. It's it's so weird. Like <laughs> that it's created and then Seraphim has it, but then Seraphim already has a badass magical weapon. So it it seemed pointless. Like it was it ever actually necessary to the plot to have that sword forged? Wait, what, Doug, Doug, go ahead. Yeah, I had a bit of a different reaction to this sword just because, I mean, okay, you know, it was forged by Zeus with the intention of giving it to his son, which, you know, that follows expectation. And the expectation was that, you know, fine, after Heron threw the sword into the stone in anger, and by the way, sword in the stone made me think of King Arthur, if we're going to talk about cribbing stuff. But uh, instead, you know, Seraphim claims it, and... It's like, oh, okay, well, he claimed the sword. So when is, you know, Heron going to get it back? And he never does, but the sword was still put to use because it was only through that sword that Seraphim was able to defeat the giant robot guardian Talos, the metal man, because uh, nothing else was able to hurt him. And that allowed him to claim the Cauldron of Darkness, which allowed the giants to come back, which made... Hera's plot come to fruition. So, you know, there maybe there was a whole destiny for Heron with the sword, but it never came to fruition. But there was, it's like, yeah, the, the way I looked at it was the gun was on the wall, but the person you expected to fire it was never the person that actually fired it, but it did and get fired. I agree with you. It did get fired. And I think it could have been really interesting that Seraphim claimed it, but I had two problems with it. One, he never even, or sorry, it, Heron never even tries to reclaim it. And two, there could have been so much like subliminal meaning there. There could have been so much like, so for example, you could take it like the sword is an embodiment of Zeus's interference. And if he had never interfered, then it would never have been possible for Seraphim to defeat Talos and unleash the giants and blah, blah, blah. They could have done so much with this, but instead they just kind of leave it. I, I agree with what you're saying, but like I guess on a practical level, when he fires the arrow and it knocks the sword out of Seraphim's hand, 
they still had to get away. There were, there were a bunch of demons coming at them. So, you know, they, they retreated for a real purpose. And I, I guess it could go either way. And like, I'll throw this out here is I read in an interview that Netflix has contracted these guys for two more seasons of Blood of Zeus. So if they're going to use the same characters, we could see the sword come back into play. Cool. We could. Is that a good segue to talk about the ending? Because I had issues. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, like, does anyone have anything, just general observations about the show before we get into the last uh, two episodes? I do have one. Okay. Going back to the sort of the authenticity of of the, the Mediterranean region at that time, one of the things I really appreciated was the, the diversity in the humans. They showed very realistically that although the majority of the action takes place in Greece, you have a whole bunch of people who are A, either not Greek, or B, who are Greek of various mixed heritage um, in the mix. And, and I thought that was not something that everybody thinks to do and is very authentic and realistic. And I just found it really puzzling that that wasn't replicated with the Pantheon. It's a super monochromatic Pantheon. Um, the, the Apollo had a tan, <laughs> but he had like, you know, golden blonde hair so that every, every, all of the gods were this very sort of classic Western portrayal of, and, and then I guess uh, uh, Ares had a, he had a puzzling complexion. He was like blue, kind of gray. I don't, I don't know what his deal was. Uh, with the five o'clock shadow. I felt like he was supposed to look like someone and I couldn't put my finger on it, like a, a contemporary movie star. And uh, I couldn't put my finger on it. But anyway, I just thought that was a, that was a strange choice. So I'm just going to put that out there. The only other thought I had is that we actually haven't even mentioned who uh, one character that was kind of a big part of the story, but not so big that, you know, uh, I guess that it, you couldn't get by without mentioning. I mean, that you could, that we can have this whole conversation and she has been mentioned to this point was Alexia. And I was thinking about her before just because, I mean, there, there were some issues raised about, you know, making, uh, Hera the, the typical, you know, vain, uh, petty woman, uh, which while on the one hand it feeds into Greek mythology, but on the other hand, it's like, you know, this is how you're going to portray a female character. But then they also gave us the Grand Archon Alexia, who was an Amazonian and a very strong female character. Um, in this interview I mentioned, they, the writers actually said they want, they were like heartbroken. They wanted to give so much of her background, but they just like ran out of time in these episodes. And I think they hinted that they, we might get her background in future episodes, but she was an interesting character. I thought, uh, you know, not quite demigod level, but powerful. She had her own storyline, but it just kind of got sublimated by everything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought she was, I mean, I thought she was cool. I mean, I thought she was just sort of like a, a little bit just kind of one-dimensional badass. But I did watch an interview with them where they said that they had this whole backstory for her. That I think they, you know, that it was all like written and everything. And that it just got cut out because of time and everything. And that they said that they actually offered to pay out of their own salaries for it to be animated. And they were just told like, no, we just don't have time to do mm -hmm. it. Um, and I think there was a lot of stuff, you know, like a lot, I think a lot of my complaints 
about the characters being one dimensional and stuff probably would have been addressed if there had been more. You know, like like they they initially had this as ten episodes and Netflix only gave them eight, so they had to cut a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and um, you know, so I'm not. It's not necessarily their fault. Um, but that was kind of my reaction was that we really needed to like have spend more time getting to know these characters um, if we were going to care about the big battle at the end. I feel like we might learn more about some of these other gods in the next season. Like if let's say they bring back Seraphim, I feel like they're setting up Hades for a big role in season two. So yeah. Yeah, could it could be. And and I, I think that's probably uh that resonates about Alexia because there's the one scene that they did leave in that didn't really make a ton of sense on its face, which is when they're going through the fields of the dead, which is one of my favorite scenes in the whole series. Um it that also feels very sort of authentically Greek mythology. They're going through the fields of the dead and, and Chiron at the beginning gives them this set of rules um of, of things that they shouldn't do if they don't want to die. Um and one of them is they shouldn't stir up the ground too much. And the, and the big one is that you, you mustn't turn around. And so there's this great sequence of all these red shirts being enticed by various hallucinations to turn around and meeting a grisly end. Um, and in one of those hallucinations, Alexia encounters her parents. And you can tell, you, you feel as the viewer that this is supposed to be very significant. And she's clearly upset. And her father at one point says, that your mother is dead because of you. And it's clear that there's these big issues there, but we don't know what any of them are. And so the scene doesn't, doesn't do what it could have done if we'd had some of that backstory that, that didn't make it through the process. I thought that if Chiron was that wise, he could have given them a little bit more of a heads up to, about these <laughs> illusion things. <laughs> I, I, I'm just I, You mentioned that uh, the 10 episodes, um, and it's funny because... It's often a complaint uh, with myself and pro- many critics that these shows should not be beholden to this 10-episode format, and it causes so many shows to drag. Like, there's, there's like, the obligatory flashback episode or, you know, oh, we're, we're on episode nine, so now we see the bad guy's motivation. Like, um, but yeah, I... I do think that this could have used maybe maybe one more episode or maybe a few more minutes in every episode. The one thing that I will say about that that's that has that this show has going for it is that uh it's really easy to watch. And if it had if all of that backstory had been, you know, another episode or two it made a, might have made this show a little bit harder to watch and it might have you know fallen into, into that category that i feel so many of these 10 episode season 1s have where it's just it drags but this show does not drag i wonder or, if we for just, me it didn't just should have had fewer characters introduced in this season i mean like you know maybe save kofi and evios for season 2 or something cuz yeah it, it did feel like we didn't really get to know i mean like there's this part where um I forget who, but somebody refers to Heron and Alexia's lovebirds, and yeah. it's like, wait, what, 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 what would lead you to that conclusion? Like, have they even yeah. like really talked to each other? So, um, yeah, uh, but but definitely, I thought, yeah, like either make it a little bit longer or have uh, somewhat fewer characters and more time with the characters that we already have, or or, or something, because we we definitely needed just like more quiet moments. Like I was thinking, you know, in Fellowship of the Ring, there's just this moment where they the people are all standing around and they're, you know, the members of the fellowship are all standing around and they're, you know, 
sword fighting and then two of the hobbits um kind of uh, tackle boromir and they're all like rolling around and laughing and uh aragorn's watching them and laughing and stuff we just need moments like that that are just like normal life so that we feel these are real people that aren't just you know this is the plot this is the next big fight scene that we're getting to yeah although you know it'll be interesting to see if they do sort of try to build in some more of that stuff. I think one of, as much as I overall liked the visuals and didn't object to the simplicity of the character design, um, I think they are, the simplicity of the character design does make them a little bit poorly suited for sophisticated facial expressions, um, which resulted in some kind of funny ones to me that I don't think were supposed to be funny. Like there's this look on Zeus's face early on when, when Heron is basically screaming at him, you know, it's his initial confrontation of how Zeus is a bad father and why did you leave us there? And Zeus does this like side-eyed glance, like, er, and it's <laughs> comically bad. And and there's actually a lot of Zeus's facial expressions were comically bad. Um, and I just, this is just a side note, but you know, like if, if we do get into some of this more emotional stuff, it'll be interesting to see if, if the animation actually permits facial expressions that don't look really cheesy in relation to these heavy moments. Well, part of me wonders if, if Netflix has ordered two more seasons, if they might have a bigger budget for the next couple of seasons. And maybe like, since some of us don't like the animation, maybe they'll even have a better animation budget and some of these issues might just go away. Yeah. See, Aaron, you had something specific you wanted to say about the last episode or two? Yeah, I I just don't think it should be a series. <laughs> um, I I really wanted it to be over in that final scene. I thought it was a very satisfying ending between the brothers in this climactic b- battle scene. And um, although it did suffer from, as a lot of the show did, way too many flashback voiceovers that were totally unnecessary. Um, they must have thought we have slept through previous episodes and we just really needed to have the echoes of previous episodes in our ears as we watched these final scenes, um, which I, I found overwrought and annoying in a number of places, um, including in this scene. But that note aside, there's this epic final battle between the brothers. And at one point it looks like it's all over for Heron because Seraphim has him uh, sort of in a, I don't know, a, a full Nelson or whatever from behind. And he drives his spear into Heron's uh, shoulder, I guess it is. It looks like his chest in that scene, but then later it looks like his shoulder. But anyways, and Heron makes the decision. He realizes he's never going to physically overpower his brother, and he makes the decision to push the spear through his body. Um, and then he totally Zeus's out and summons some lightning, and um, he survives. It looks like he survives just long enough to take the the dead brother's hand and put it on top of the cauldron in order to stop the giants forevermore. And I found that a really satisfying ending. And then we have this epilogue where Heron wakes up and it's just like, everybody's chilling by the pool and we get a tiny little bit of dialogue and then it's over. And whether you make the decision to continue with the series or not, I kind of would have liked that really dramatic ending to just sit and be rather than have this chilling by the pool moment at the end that just, I don't know. It felt like this huge epic battle just took place, but everybody's fine with it. And we're making flowers grow with our fingers and, you know, well, e- eating yeah, grapes. And we saw um, Seraphim in the underworld too. There was that piece and and that piece I could have lived with 
um, as, as being a kind of cues that there is going to be the next series, but it doesn't go into this. I don't know. There was a kind of a, ah, it was no big deal kind of feel to that last scene. So you're saying that you, sh- you like say for the sake of argument that they, they were going to have more seasons, but you think it should have just ended on that dramatic note. And then they should have had the chilling by the pool start in season two or, or not. Yeah. Something like that. Like it, it ends on that note. And maybe there's a post credit scene of, of Seraphim in, in Hades. The end. Uh-huh. And then, yeah. And, and then the, or, and we could maybe get a hint that, um, that Heron survives. I, I wouldn't object to that necessarily, but yeah, the, this, the scene at the end where there's just Heron's bandage is almost like literally the only sign that this incredible world racking event has just taken place. And it just felt, I don't know, a little bit yeah. pat to me. Well, I don't know, Zach, what did you think of the last episode? Uh, well, specifically that scene, I, I enjoyed it just cause it just went batshit and we had the anime fights and, um, but specifically with that scene, I liked it because I it got me thinking, like, where is this show going to go next? And I wasn't fully on board. But, like, now, oh, okay, so he's is he replacing Zeus? Like, are they, you know, seeing him as a god slash demigod? I don't think I would have been asking those questions or, or predicting what's to come or be being excited about Heron's plot if we ended it, um, you know, the one scene before. So I, I understand the, the complaints, but I, I was there for it. Yeah. I wonder if maybe like in that last scene, if, if you just saw more signs, you know, if there's just more smoking ruins and people with injuries and people, you know, in pain and sort of pull, you know, pulling themselves together, if it wouldn't have if it would have done everything that it needed to, to set up season two without having this issue that Aaron's pointing to where it seems like we just had this like Ragnarok style battle and it's kind of was no big deal. Maybe even a bit of animosity between the gods because they were just fucking fighting each other, (laughs) you know? Exactly. They were just trying to kill each other. And like they, and nobody's asking the question, like, what do we do now? Our King is dead and our queen. Yeah. Ares and Apollo should have been like mean mugging each other. And I think that would have <laughs> like gone a long way for that scene. See, Doug, what do you think of anything else you want to say about the last episode? Uh, well, I mean, I did enjoy it. Uh, I think Zach hit the nail on the head when he called it batshit crazy because the fight scenes were fantastic. Um, I loved the final uh, little scene with Seraphim. I wouldn't have had a problem if they made it like a, a post credit scene as Aaron suggested, I kind of understood the purpose for the scene post-battle, but before Seraphim, where you just see everyone around the pool, because you see Seraphim, not not Seraphim, excuse me, Heron, becoming accepted by the other gods and basically ascending now to what we're acknowledging is his rightful place in Olympus. So that felt like the full arc to his story. Uh, I guess there could have been a little more damage and mayhem that they depicted, but they did show some of Hephaestus's uh, constructs uh, fixing the damage for uh, for Olympus. Um, my big question, though, about the last scene was: okay, they showed Zeus uh, dying 
in battle. And that was a cool death the way he went out. It does raise a question, well, are they going to find a way to bring him back in season two? Um, but also, like, you saw Hera lose her hand to Seraphim. But I don't think she actually died, but we don't see her in that scene at the pool. So it felt like, to me, it felt a little incomplete what they did with Hera there. I mean, I guess for her behavior of unleashing the giants uh, and letting things go too far, that was her penance, losing her hand. But it didn't feel like a full arc to her story because that was like the last time we saw. Well, now that you mentioned, I, I I feel pretty certain they're both coming back because yeah, we didn't see her die, and there's I forget, isn't there something with we see something with with a lightning bolt involving Zeus or something that I feel like gave me the pretty clear impression that he was going to come back. Well, they showed his statue, like they put they put a lot of emphasis on focusing on his statue at the poolside scene at the end. So that said to me, they're going to find a way to bring yeah. him back. Well, and then and then you see like lightning strikes or something. I mean, yeah. that's. That just, I don't know, that that's kind of irritating to me because I would just prefer that that Zeus and Hera are dead. And then now, like, we go forward, like, really, what is next? If if it's just Zeus is back and it's like, okay, well, we have these two heavy hitters. I like the idea of, you know, Poseidon is and Hades. I, I mean, they're the two offspring left of the Titans, right? And then, like, they're the big heavy hitters. And so what does that mean? You know, I think that that's a cooler route. K- kill off Zeus entirely. He was a boring ass character, anyways. <laughs> I well, no, I agree with you, Zach. I just think, like, in terms of what do I actually think is going to happen, I think yeah, Hera yeah. Come I, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, Hera got away, and the, and there was that weird thing where she's whispering over the crown just after Zeus died. One thing I will say is that I liked that Hera clearly had some regrets <laughs> um, at the end, like. Pretty much the instant Zeus, Zeus is killed, if not, in fact, in, in the instant before he's killed, she's like, oh, no. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, the, the one thing this <laughs> show needs, the one thing this show needs is less characters. <laughs> and yeah, that's sure. how they can get less, is stop reviving people. Fewer characters would be good, but I still, I still want to see more. I just need to see more Apollo. I also, I just, the abs make me laugh every time, and the way he flicks his hair, it's completely well, amazing. Well, but the, and that, that, but that thing with Zeus and Hera, where they kind of have this, like, you know, he saves her, and then she feels bad, and everything. It, it just, it, it again made her seem like a we, like, like she leads this whole like. Capricious like, like, what, what did, belief. Like, yeah. what did you think? What did you think? Like murdering half of the gods was going to involve, like. I don't. It, it just seems like yeah. It made her seem yeah, just so like fickle and um, you know, not thinking things through. And oops, you know, did yeah. I do that? Did I almost murder everyone? <laughs> Maybe season two is a big part of her trying to make amends for her for like her fickleness. That could be an interesting twist. Um, but you know, I'm willing to like let Zeus, like I'm willing to be on board with Zeus and Hera coming back, depending on what they do with that next season. I remember there was also like a point where they hinted that maybe Hera might be the way to get Seraphim out from uh, the underworld because there was a throwaway line where she said, I can protect you from the horrors of Hades. I'm paraphrasing, but I don't think they did that for no reason whatsoever. I think Hera might be the reason uh, to that Seraphim somehow comes out from Hades. So I feel like they planted a lot of potential seeds everywhere from leaving the sword to what Hera said to her losing her hand to not seeing that final scene with Hera 
to focusing on zoo. So they planted a lot of seeds. They could go in a number of directions. Yeah, I, I don't know if we mentioned this, but I, they said that they've plotted this out as a five-season thing. So. Oh, oh, my really? Lord. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I am looking for. I mean, I thought that the visual design of Hades was was really great, and so I am looking forward to seeing more of that. And you have, do I have the thing here? Just the the different um, regions that you see: um, Tartarus, Asphodel, Erebus. Um, you know, just I'm, I I just love those names and those concepts. And I I I think if stuff happens, you know, if there's more stuff that we see in Hades in season two, I think that would be pretty cool. And including Hades being like, has anyone seen my dog? <laughs> yeah, he, he got he got out, and I haven't seen him in days. Here boy, here boy. Why is he? Does <laughs> anyone know what happened to head. the heads of my dog? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that was kind of cool that they cut the dog. They cut Cerberus's one of his heads off, and then you know he's he's still running around. He actually like bites the rest of his head off, and then he's like, say, he's like, I'm good to go. Ass, he gets like a spear or something in his head, and the the other two heads just chew it off. That was badass. Uh, again, Shit, I just didn't hardcore. understand why Cerebus was there to begin with. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. And they they never refer to him by name. They're never like, "Oh, this is my dog Cerberus." Like it's not it's not clear why he's there at all. Um, but that being said, I liked seeing him. I also thought he kind of changed sizes. <laughs> there were a few moments where he seemed like as big as a truck, and then other moment other moments where he was more like bear sized. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, and I, I guess we haven't really mentioned the like extreme graphic violence, um, but I love that. <laughs> I just want to point that oh, out. Oh, when they eviscerated the chimera, when when Alexia slices open the chimera and all the guts spill out, that was that was really well done. Yeah, it's the same animation studio that did the animation work as uh, Castlevania, so you're gonna you're it's the same kind of like blood and guts and level of awesome fighting. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw Zach. The studio it's called Power, like Powerhouse Animation Studios, is located in Austin, so we could yes. go check them out sometime if they have power, water, and food. I hope, <laughs> I hope they do. I hope. I hope they got. I hope they have power so they can keep working on season two. They were put on the essential services list, maybe. <laughs> um. All right. Cool. So I think we're pretty much. Um, does anyone else have anything else about the show before we get into our final thoughts here? No. No. All right. Final thoughts. Uh, uh, Doug, final thoughts. Final thoughts. Uh, pretty much it's not perfect, but it's easy, fun viewing. There's some moments that are truly, you know, worthwhile. And if you look past some of the quibbles that we all raised, uh, it's a pretty good show and there's room for growth. Yeah, uh, Zach. Final thoughts. Um, yeah, I room for growth. Uh, solid for me. Solid second half of season one. If you liked Castlevania, definitely check this out. I, I also like to do like some quick recommendations. Um, if you like this show, uh, Ilium and uh, Olympus uh, series by Dan Simmons is really epic and kind of similar with like metahuman gods. Um, and it's like Greek mythology, uh, the God of war series, the original God of war, uh, series. And, um, yeah, the video game series. It's, it's really cool. I highly recommend that. And even they're kind of revamping it, but it's no longer Greek 
gods um, that you're killing. Uh, it's Norse gods. But that first series is you basically starting off as a mortal and then killing Ares and then killing ev- everyone. <laughs> and it's it's really um, cool if you're into Greek mythology. Really cool if you're into very graphic violence. If you like uh, like Devil May Cry type games, action. It's like an action uh, um, type game. And then uh, there's a new uh, show coming out on Amazon Prime called Invincible. So if you like um, these like big super powered brawls that get very bloody um invincible is gonna you know scratch that same itch all right cool yeah i mean no i i like i said i mean i i definitely would not discourage anyone from watching this show i think it has a lot going for it and so i would give it a try and you know if you um you know don't find the characters interesting i don't think it gets better as it goes in that regard but i mean if you're enjoying it you know keep watching it and i do hope maybe in season two it'll be you know they'll have a little bit more time to develop the characters and you know they might get 10 episodes or whatever i don't know um but so aaron final thoughts yeah i um i enjoyed it uh, i think there's a lot of potential to 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 broaden and deepen in season two um i would like to see more I, I don't know, maybe this just says more about me, but I would like to see more of the the political machinations that might be happening um, post-apocalypse on Mount Olympus. I think there's a lot of interesting um, fallout that could take place. I, I found in general, the gods were more interesting than the mortals. Um, but maybe that's just because to be fair to season one, they were doing a lot in terms of storyline um, in a very contracted number of episodes. So, you know, hopefully Blood of Zeus was successful enough that they'll get a chance to spread their wings a little bit um, and really flesh out some of the things that would make it um, that would make it sort of evolve from a satisfying, if slightly two dimensional, thing to to something a little bit richer. Yeah, I think that definitely that would be my my number one notice. That Heron, I just think we need to see more. You know, there just needs to be more about him that makes us want to spend time with him. You know, that he needs to have a bit more of a spark or a bit more charisma or you know, or just just something that makes us uh, want to spend you know, eight episodes or 10 episodes um, watching what happens to him. Well, I suspect they're going to spend a lot of time in season two creating the the love story of our quote unquote lovebirds. So <laughs> if, if they're going to do that and they're going to make us believe it, that'll lead to a lot of characterization with Alexia, probably get her backstory and Heron because we got to believe the love story. Yeah. One, uh, Dave, you had mentioned uh, an anthology series written by uh, these two creators and it being like each episode a different Greek mythology to me. Each, each it, season. Oh, each season. Oh, wow. Well, I would think each episode, uh, I, I think that would be really fascinating. I would love to watch the, an anime that is, you know, each episode is a is a brand new Greek mythology in that same animation style, that would be awesome. And I think that they're short enough to where you could get a very satisfying, um, a lot of the myths are short enough to where you don't need this really long epic uh, thing. You know, you can just do it in a 30 minute show. I think that would be awesome. Yeah. I always want to see more anthology shows. I mean, I think that, you know, I think they tend not to be as popular because people want to see the same characters come back over and over, but you know, if anyone's asking my opinion, more the more anthology shows, the better. But definitely, if you if you're into Greek mythology, I think you should check this show out. Um, and you know, if it's it borrows a lot from the backstory of of the Heracles myth, so if that's your jams, I think I think you'll like it. Yeah, 
All right, cool. So let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Douglas Cohen, and Zach Chapman. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Douglas Cohen, and Zach Chapman for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.